And I was deciding whether or not to preach this last section of Timothy as one message or two messages, and decided that the next three verses were so important and had such significance for us that we'd split this into two. So next week we will um, do the last three verses of Timothy in a book overview, and then we'll dive into the second book of the Psalms, starting in Psalm 42 as the deer. But today we're to look at Paul's instruction to Timothy, which really comes kind of as a postscript, you know, the P.S. in a letter. Last week, Pastor Joel uh, masterfully preached um, really the crescendo of the close of the book. There's this wonderful doxology um, that, that Paul gives about God. You can see that in chapter 6, verse um, 15, middle of the verse. Who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And, that, and you could think you could just close the book right there. And then he comes back with one more topic, one more point. And you got to wonder what topic so important for Paul that after such a crescendo, I got to get it in there. And it's a word to the rich. This, this morning's message is titled, How to Be Truly Rich. And it's, and it's meant to read two ways. There's a double entendre there. Um, first and foremost, it's really about how to be, how to exist, how to live as a wealthier, rich person. And then at the end of our passage, we'll see how to become truly rich. And so, how to be truly rich. Let's read verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we're going to look at how to be truly rich. And Paul's got instruction for the wealthy. And I can imagine some of us here sitting today going, good, good, there's some people in this room that can probably stand to hear this. But I got news for you. I'm going to argue that we are all wealthy, materially. And from a, just for, from an economic, worldwide scale, we are easily the most affluent people ever to live in the wealthiest country ever to exist. I just went online to some statistics from a worldwide census just to give you some information. The population of the world in 2012, 6.8 billion people. Almost half of those live on less than $2.50 a day. 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. 1.4 billion, so a little less than a quarter of the world population, live on less than $1.25 a day. Nearly 1 billion people entered the 21st century unable to read a book or sign their name. Of those 6.8 billion, 2.2 billion are children. And of those 2.2 billion, 1 billion children are in poverty. 22,000 children die each day due to conditions of poverty. So in light of the world stage, please understand 
that if you have a penny more than food and clothing, which is what Paul used as his standard for contentment a little earlier in this chapter, you are wealthy. If you can afford to go to the movies, order a pizza, you are wealthy. If you have a concept such as leisure time, you are wealthy. This, this, this is only the Industrial Revolution. There was no leisure time prior to the Industrial Revolution except for kings and monarchs. And, and Paul's word for us is not to feel guilty because we have more than others. But understand we do. Understand each and every one of us here has far more than the majority of the people alive and the majority of people who have ever lived. Understand that. This isn't a message for the person next to you. This is a message for you and for me. We are the wealthy. And so we've seen two weeks ago the danger of desiring to become wealthy, but some people, not because they craved it, not because they sought it, but just in God's providence, they have more financial resources than others. And there's nothing wrong with that. This is not a rebuke. But there's a stewardship and a responsibility that is on us to live it a certain way. And, and the stakes are high. Again, the reason why I, I made this a standalone message is because the stakes are high. You can remember Jesus saying it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, that should be frightening news for us. Or you think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and because he loved his possessions, because he wouldn't serve the Lord with what he owned, he went away sad and perished. It's not just a problem of our day. Cotton Mather once said that faithfulness begot prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. Or another way of saying it, the pilgrims came over here meaning to do good but ended up doing well. And so there's a danger. There's always a danger in prosperity. The church thrives in persecution. The church thrives and grows in suffering and oppression. But it's wealth and affluence and prosperity that in church history has proven to be the greatest snare. You think of the seed that grew up among thorns and the cares of this world choked it out. So the stakes are high. There's a way to live with resources. It glorifies God. And there's a way to live with resources that'll take you straight to hell. And the way we live with our resources will reflect our heart. It will reflect what we love. It will reflect what we are trusting in. So we're saved by faith, but what we believe in will be reflected by our bank statements, our checking accounts. And so there's, there's much for us here. Much for us here. This is a critical test of faith. And, and Paul's instruction to Timothy falls along four points. The first, be cultivating humility. Be cultivating humility. Now Paul says it negatively, and I wanted to put it positively. He says, warn them, charge them, instruct them not to be haughty. Literally, not to think high thoughts of themselves. See, there's a danger when you've got more things than others to think that somehow that's a reflection on you. Maybe even it is. Maybe you are smarter. Maybe you did work harder. Maybe you were more diligent. Maybe you made better investment choices. So what? There's this great danger to think that what I own is a reflection of who I am. And certainly, if this life is all there is, to some degree, there's truth to that. But that viewpoint of what I own, the money I make, 
possessions I have defines me is a secular and atheistic way of looking at life. It's absolutely the way the unbelievers look at things. But it should not be the way we look at things. And what will happen is as you begin to take pride in what you have and what you've accomplished, you'll begin to think less of others. And, and you can just imagine and think of all the biblical passages where God rails against the wealthy who would oppress the widow, the orphan, the underprivileged. God's heart is for them. And we as the spiritual paupers who our Heavenly Father sent His Son to make us become inheritors of His kingdom, we of all people should not trust in this world but should be humble. But there's this danger of pride coming up. Pride rooting itself up. And so I just want to come up with three things to help. Three, how do, you, how do you fight pride of materialism? How do you fight the temptation to view yourself and your self-worth by what you have and how much money you make. Well, I got three things here. The first, realize that wealth comes from God. Realize that wealth comes from God. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's say you are smarter than others. Let's say you have a better work ethic than others. Where, where did that come from? It came from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. I mean, you might as well boast in how tall you are. Boast in the color of your hair. Just boast in your intelligence. Boast in your money-making ability. So remember that any good thing you have, any ability I have, comes from God. Secondly, we've got to realign our values because the real problem going on here when we evaluate ourselves by what we have is that we've adopted the world's secular viewpoint of values. And again, the world's view is whoever dies with the most toys wins. Get what you can, can what you get, sit on the can. And if we adopt that value system, we're going to live differently. And if we can eschew that value system, we're going to live differently yet again. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, Paul writes this. For this momentary and light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now get this. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What he's saying is, Paul's saying is, I live my life, and, and you might think I live my life in a crazy way, Paul's saying elsewhere in, in Corinthians. I live my life because I'm not looking at this world. I'm not fixated on this world and the things of this world, because I know that the things of this world are like that. A little mist that appears for a time, and it's gone. This, this is our life. In this world. That's this world, Paul says. And I'm looking to the world that is immovable. It's invisible. I see it with eyes of faith, but I'm looking to that world. And so you've got to realign your values. If all you're looking at is this life and this world, and trust me, there is millions of dollars spent in advertising getting to entice us to do just that. To think that, man, you're right. If only I did have that car, people would respect me. 
man, if, if only I did have that suit, I'd have a girlfriend. I mean, that, that's advertising's all about salvation through product. And so there is a whole world against us doing this, but the way to fight pride in what you own is to, to get your eyes off of the here and now and get your eyes on eternal things. Get a long view of history. Which brings us to our third point. Remember your frailty and finitude. Remember your frailty and finitude. We are but dust, God says. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. In James 1, James instructs the church how to counsel, how to encourage the poor and the rich in their midst. James 1, 9-11. He says this, Let the lowly brother, the poor brother, boast in his exaltation. See, if you're, if you're poor, if you're downtrodden, if you're beaten up, if, if you're one of the you know, 40% of the people in the world who live on $1.25 a day, if you're one of those people, man, it would probably be helpful for you to fixate, to focus on the fact you, you're heirs of God. You've been adopted into the family of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has the title deed of the entire universe and has called you to reign with him. Rejoice in that. That's the counsel James gives that poor, downtrodden, broken Christians should focus on. But then he has a different emphasis for the rich to focus on. Yeah, there is truth to this. And you can sell a lot of books. You know, you're, you're the child of a king. That is true. But I think in America, we are far more in need of hearing James's counsel to the rich. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises, and with it a scorching heat, and withers the grass, and his flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See, James is aware of the temptation to boast in what you have, and so he encourages rich Christians, rather, focus on your frailty. Focus on the fact that your life is a mist. It's a vapor. It's like a flower that blooms one day, and the sun rises up and scorches it, and then you perish. You're only here for a little while. And no matter how rich you are materially. You were so, I was so poor spiritually that my best deeds were like medical waste in the sight of God. My best deeds were so vile that Jesus Christ had to leave heaven, enter my world, and die on a cross so that God could possibly tolerate the sight of me in his presence. I can, I can focus on that and humble myself in my humiliation. And, and so when you think of how short this life is, and you think of how long eternity is, it's insanity to live for the now. Here, I got an illustration here that I, it's not original to me. I, I saw this illustration probably nine, ten years ago at, at the chapel at Masters. Um, Francis Chan used it, and it you know, nine, ten years later, it stuck with me. I thought it might be helpful. I want you to imagine this rope doesn't have an end. I've, I've draped it around the platform, but I want you to imagine there's a hole in the corner of the platform over there, and it just goes out, and it goes up to Norwalk, and it does a couple loops around the globe, and it goes off to the moon, and off to the stars. It, it's never-ending. And I want you to imagine that this rope is your timeline. 
Because all of us had a start date. We came into being at some point. But none of us will go out of existence. None of us will cease being ever. Ever. Just, just slow down and imagine it. Now I want you to imagine this red taped section on the rope. This is your time on earth. This is the time you have living here on earth. And the rest of this is someplace else. Not only that, but where you spend the rest of this rope is completely crucial on what you do in here. And we've got so many people just zeroed in, focusing on this. If I just work really hard right here, when I get to right here, it's going to be sweet. You know, you know man, they might, I'm going to, I'm going to, work hard, and I'm going to put the extra hours in here, so when I get to here, I'm going to be able to go on vacations. And you see the foolishness of this when you've got the rest of this rope. Like, really? It's insanity. See, the only reason I can figure someone would do that is I don't really believe the rope keeps on going. Not really. And so that's the challenge. Do we really believe what we say we believe? Do we really believe there's a world after this that never ends? Would we live differently? Would we value ourselves differently if we really believed that? Second, Paul tells Timothy to have the rich set their hope on what is sure. To set their hope on what is sure. So in our first point, we see there's a false sense of importance. Here, there's a false security. Verse 17 B, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, this is this notion of setting, placing your hope. There's a verb tense in the Greek called the perfect verb tense, and it refers to an action that took place in the past, but the focus is on the, the enduring results of the action. It's kind of like if I say, showing up to class, I have studied. The emphasis is on, I'm ready for the test. The results of studying make me prepared and unafraid for this exam. Or I have been inoculated for, you know, the flu, so I'm safe. And here, have the rich not place their hopes on riches such that that is what endures. Because it won't endure. But to place their hope on God. Not to place their hope in uncertain riches. T turn with me to Luke 12. This is a very familiar parable, a very familiar story our Lord taught. Our Lord taught on money a lot. He taught on money a lot. And so if we're going to be wealthy, and we are, you live in America, you're going to be hard-pressed not being wealthy to some degree in a worldwide standard, then you've got to know how to do it. And the way to do it first, you've you got to be humble. You've got to be humble. But second, you've got to put your hope in what is sure. And Jesus warns us of a rich fool. Verse 15, chapter 12. He said to the man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care. Beware. Watch out. Be on your guard against all covetousness. And here's, here's the point we're trying to make. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let me say that again. One's life does not consist in the abundance of it's possessions. Your, your possessions don't define you. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The, fools, the, the, the foolish rich man's only mistake is he doesn't realize the rope keeps going. That's what God rebukes him for. He's not in sin because his crops produced extra. He's not in sin because he wanted to build some barns. But it was the attitude of, I have nothing to worry about. The rest of my life is taken care of. I'm going to live in ease. Right, right about here, man, this, this spot on the rope is going to be sweet. It's going to be good. And God says, well, actually, you're going to be dead tonight. And who's going to get your possessions? And what preparation have you done for eternity? So you may be rich in this life. That's how Paul starts. It's the rich in this age. But this person here was, was poor in the age to come. So don't, don't set your hopes in the uncertainty of riches. And, and that's the other thing we learn is that riches don't always stay, do they? Proverbs 23, 4 to 5 says this, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it will sprout wings like an eagle toward heaven. Yeah, money can have wings and take off. Anyone here who's alive through the Great Depression knows that. Just because you've got money now doesn't mean you'll have money tomorrow. The economy can get worse. The economy can get better. I'm just going to read to you. This is, as I was preparing for this message, this quote, this episode was so powerful. I just want to read it to you in its entirety. In the year 1922, nine of the world's wealthiest men held a meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. In attendance were the presidents of the world's largest steel, gas, and utility companies, the world's greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, and a member of the presidential cabinet, a Wall Street tycoon, and the head of the world's largest monopoly, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements. The men who met at Edgewater that day knew all the secrets of generating and manipulating capital. They could own anything and everything that money could buy. There was one more thing they held in common, which is that within the next decade, they all lost everything they had. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money for the last five years of his life and died bankrupt. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, went insane. The president of the largest utility, Samuel Insull, died in a foreign land, penniless and a fugitive from justice. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cotton, also died abroad and insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was sent to the infamous Sing Sing Penitentiary. The member of the presidential cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so that he could die at home. The Wall Street tycoon, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. The head of the world's largest monopoly, Ivan Kruger, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, also committed suicide. Although it is sad and shocking, the story of these nine men should not be surprising. For the Bible warns the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You can't trust in money. You can't. 
History tells us that, and we still want to. We still believe it can save us. It can redeem us. It can protect us. It will be our strong shield of defense. It is uncertain. It's vanishing. Proverbs warns, it'll take wings and fly. Don't put your hope on something so unstable, so weak as money. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in the living and giving God. And, and Paul makes the point, it's not that God is stingy. He calls him here the God who generously, lavishly gives us all things for our enjoyment. But you've got to put your hope in him. He's the one that's going to save you. He's the one that's going to redeem you. He's the one that's going to keep you from danger. He's the one that's going to protect you when the hard times come. He's the one who's going to put his hand on you. Not money. Not wealth. Don't, don't trust in that. Trust in him. I mean, think of what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly became a pauper, penniless, Jewish peasant. Is he going to hold back things that we need? Can we not trust him? who gave his son for us to not also freely give us all things. And this is the way then that we may enjoy God's good gifts. In this way, we enjoy them. God made them to be enjoyed. There is nothing wrong. This is the good news. There's nothing wrong in enjoying the good things that God has given you. I mean, after all, turn back in 1 Timothy to chapter 4 where Paul was refuting the asceticism, this notion that you should, in, you know, cast off all worldly pleasure, all worldly enjoyment. And Paul says, that's not godly. That's not spiritual. Oh, it may impress people. Look how austere and how, you know, difficult this person lives. It doesn't impress God. Chapter 4 says, verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and with prayer. So all of God's good creation, enjoy it. If God's given you material prosperity, there is nothing wrong in enjoying his creation. What is wrong is putting your hope in it. What is wrong is thinking that somehow this entitles you to greater honor or privilege. That's what's wrong. This is, this is how to truly be rich. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy it. It came from God. He gave it to you. To his glory enjoy it. But don't worship the thing. Worship the giver. Don't worship the gift. Don't worship creation. Worship the creator. See, there's, there's, two, there's two dangers here to avoid. On the one hand, we've got this austere asceticism, this I'm just going to live on porridge and wear a camel hair coat and sleep on the floor because that will make me godly. And, 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 and Paul says that's garbage. That's, that's ungodly. There is a danger also though. He talks about some widows. In chapter 5 verse 6 he warns against self-indulgent living. This is not license for self-indulgence. There's a difference between enjoying God's gifts and creation and living for them. Living to enjoy them. And so he warns in chapter 5 verse 6 about widows that she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. 
So, so that this isn't license for that. But there's, there's, there is room to enjoy God's good things. But now, point three, we get to, well then, what else are we supposed to do? And here, we have a surprising, couple of surprising things here. The, the, the blank is, become truly rich. Become truly rich. Here's the first thing I want you to notice that Paul gives for instruction to the rich at Ephesus. God doesn't need their money. God doesn't need their money. Doesn't need your money. Doesn't need my money. First thing he tells them to do, rather, is to be rich in good works. The, the irony is just earlier in this chapter, Paul warned about those who desire to become rich. Right? They, they shipwreck their faith. They fall into a snare and are pierced by many arrows. Here, here's a command. Be rich in good works. So God wants you to be rich in good works. There's a command here. You must be. I must become rich in good works. And that's, that's the play on words, the irony here. There's a passing value of good works. And good works don't need money. You can be kind to people without spending money. You can prefer others without spending money. This, this first command of obligation to the rich doesn't involve their money. It involves their good works, godliness. It involves them living out their faith. It involves them sharing the love of Christ to others. Secondly, the importance of generosity. Now, here's finally some instruction for what good to do with their money. I mean, it's not as though God doesn't care what you do with your money. But Paul's making the point clear. He's after our hearts, first and foremost. That's why we deal with pride. We deal with hope. We deal with good works in general. Now we get to the purse. Now we get to your wallet. And if you are in the situation, like me, and I think like everyone else in this room, of having more than food and shelter, with which we shall be content, then God wants us also to be generous. Generous. And again, this points back to the generosity of God mentioned just a verse earlier. God, he says, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And because God is richly generous, he wants us to be richly generous to others. And again, this is where the, the proof is in the pudding of our faith. We can talk a good talk. But does our walk talk? Does our fruit talk? Does it confirm the songs we sing? faith we profess. Turn one more time to James. This time chapter 2. James chapter 2, another familiar passage where James is explicitly making the same point. Verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The assumed answer, obviously, no. And he gives an example to demonstrate. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food. Remember the bar Paul set, food and shelter? Here's someone without it. Someone beneath the contentment bar. Someone shows up without that, and you say to them, Go in peace. Be warm and filled. I'm praying for you. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And so Paul is telling the rich, you've got to be generous. A person who's unwilling to be generous, you really got to start questioning after time, have they experienced the generosity of God? Have they experienced the love of God? Because how can it not be overflowing out of their hearts? Again, Paul doesn't start here. This isn't just like a checklist. Like you can just, okay, I'll go give some money to the poor. God wants your hearts. He wants your hope. He wants your humility. And then he wants your money for his purposes. Generously giving. Be truly rich. The irony, again, is that these false teachers were using godliness as a way to get money. Paul puts it on his head and says, no, use money for godliness. It's not, it's not godliness getting you money. It's money coming from a right heart with the right hope, with the right humble attitude. That can be used for godliness and godly purposes. And it's an amazing statement in Acts 4.33 that there was not a needy person among them, speaking of the early church. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. The early church, thousands of Christians in Jerusalem, there was not a needy person among them because as many as who did have things sold them to care for the needs of those who did not. The early church got this. The early church got this. And, and the point again is that we have a stewardship with our money. It's not our money. It's God's money. We've been given a stewardship with. We'll give an account for that. And so we start to see the responsibility of being given this world's possessions is the responsibility that God's going to be expecting to see what we did with it. Which gets us now to our fourth point. Be truly saving. Be truly saving. And here we see in verse 19, 1 Timothy 6, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is true life. And here we see three things. We're going to see the right savings account, the good foundation, and the true life. The right savings account, the good foundation, and the true life. Let's look at the right savings account. And, and Paul already introduced this notion in the very first phrase of our, of our section by talking about being rich in this age. Now that, of course, assumes there's another age. We get back to the rope illustration. There's the red section and there's everything else. And Paul now wants us, he wants the rich, to be concerned not with accumulating wealth in this age, but in the age to come. That by doing good works, by being generous, by having our hope set on God, by cultivating humility, we are going to reap heavenly dividends. I want you to imagine that a, that a millionaire invited a bunch of poor people into his house for a Monopoly tournament. Or actually, better yet, the game of life. You know that, that game that you can get with the spinning wheel and the cars, the game of life? He invites a bunch of poor people to his house to play the game of life. And there's two sets of rules you can play by. You can play by the manufacturer's rules, in which case the person at the end of the game who has the most money wins. I believe that's how you win the game of life by Parker Brothers. There's a second set of rules the rich man says to these poor people is this. As often as you're kind, as often as you help the other players, as often as you give their money, I will deposit $10,000 into your bank account each one time any one of you does that. And I'll be watching. And I'll be keeping score. And so you can play to win according to the rules, and we'll give you a little plastic trophy. 
or you can play by my rules. And anytime you help another opponent, anytime you're kind to them, anytime you do any good thing to them, bing, 10,000 in your bank account that you get to walk out of here with. Let me ask you, how would you play the game? Now maybe there's one or two people here that are so competitive, they're gonna play by the original rules anyway just because they want that little plastic trophy. And no, and, and likewise, amongst us, there are some people that are so competitive that I want to win at the game of life. I want my neighbors to see that I won. Okay, fine. But after the game of life's over, you got your little plastic trophy, and everyone else has got riches in heaven. So, you know, how, how good did that work out? In fact, the only reason I can think of why somebody wouldn't play by the millionaire's set of rules is if they really didn't trust the millionaire was going to keep his word. I mean, what other reason would somebody not play by his rules with such lavish promise of riches? Maybe you don't trust him. Maybe you don't think he's going to keep his word. Jesus puts in front of us the promise of riches. It's not that God wants us to deny ourselves because there's some inherent virtue in it. He wants us to deny ourselves so that we can reap treasure in heaven. It's, it's like telling a child to put down the Snickers bar because there's a porterhouse steak coming. You don't want to ruin your appetite. I want you to deny yourself the Snickers bar so you can enjoy this porterhouse steak with all the trimmings. Cheesy potatoes. I'm still a little sore from my 10-day juice fast. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's what God's calling us to do. C.S. Lewis described it like children playing in the mud, making mud pies, who turned down the invitation of a trip to the ocean or Disneyland simply because they don't really understand what's being offered them. And that's what we are like. We're satisfied with so many lesser things when we're called to store up treasure in heaven. And so we need the right savings account. Where are you looking? What, what's your eye on for your treasure, for your value, for your savings? Is your, is your eye on this little spot right here at the end? Or is your eye on the rest of the rope? What, what are you looking to? Get the right savings account and thereby get the good foundation. Now, some have taken this verse to argue that one can get their salvation by giving alms. In fact, I think the Roman Catholic Church uses this text to justify the giving of alms as a way to remit sins. But to miss the point, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. These are people who put their faith in Jesus. And now they build upon that foundation of faith obedience and good works. It, it's the works that authenticate, that prove the existence of the faith that saves. See, faith alone in Christ alone saves alone. As we read in James, faith that never actually does anything isn't going to save anybody because it's not real faith. Real faith bears fruit. You'll know the tree by its fruit. If it's got figs, it's a fig tree. If it's got thorns, it's a thorn bush. You can argue all day long that thorny looking thing's a fig tree. I'm not going to believe you. And so we need the good foundation. And by doing this then, we lay hold of true life. Lay hold of true life. And this again is referenced back to what Pastor Joel just preached last week where he tells Timothy to take hold of. 
Look at verse 12, chapter 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And what it's saying is this. If, if you are God's child, if you're born again, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're his. You have life. The question is, are you going to live it now? Or are you going to live this world's life? You can take hold of life and begin living like a child of God, begin living with his values, with his mindset, with his riches, or you can play in the mud puddles some more. It's your choice. Play in the mud puddles long enough, he'll probably come along and discipline you because he loves you. He's a good shepherd. He doesn't let his sheep stray. And so what he's saying is that by, by adopting God's values, by adopting God's treasure, by adopting our hope in him, we begin to take hold. It's like someone's grabbed your arm and you're grabbing back. We take hold of eternal life and begin living that life now. Jesus says in, in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has it. Not he will have it. Has it. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 begins this way. This is the last hours before Jesus is arrested and crucified. When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom he has given them. And this is eternal life. What's eternal life? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want to know what eternal life is? It's knowing Jesus. You want to know what eternal life is? It's fellowship with Jesus. But if you love money and you pursue money, your fellowship with Jesus is going to be distant, far, but if you're willing to pursue him and his values, then you're taking hold of that life. You are embracing him in fellowship. You will know him and you will have the life. And so I just want to bring our message to an end here by just asking the questions. I don't want you to misinterpret this. This is not about how to be saved. You get saved by knowing Jesus by faith. And once you're saved, as a person who has more than food and shelter, this is how you should live. But... Jesus left his home. I just, want to, I just want to read that verse in 2 Corinthians again. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You can, just, you can just listen. You can write down. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus Christ left heaven, left the glories attended to him there, the rights and the privileges he had, adoration, worship, rule, dominion, power, and he became a Jewish peasant. And he lived, and he suffered, and then he was falsely um, arrested, falsely tried. And although he lived a sinless life, he was crucified. Killed for sins he didn't commit. And on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sin. God the Father can now be just in declaring us innocent, despite the fact that we're guilty. Because his son, the innocent one, paid for our crimes. And he rose again the third day, and all those who place their trust in him, all those who turn to him, all those who believe in him, have life. And they know him now, and we will know him from that rope, spending time in fellowship with him. 
knowing him better with each other. That, that's, that's the gospel, is, is trusting that that is how you can be saved. And then living for that life, not living for this life. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing our final song. I just want to challenge you. If, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, now would be a great time to do that. And if you have, I would also challenge you to look at the way you spend your money. Look at the way you view your resources. Are you playing with mud pies? Or are you taking hold of life? Please stand.